Emerald Couch Podcast is a weekly conversation with Dr. Lakeitha Poole, a licensed professional counselor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, about all things mental health and personal growth. The Emerald Couch Podcast is the go-to pop site dialogue for self-help, good laughs, and real talk. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for seeking support from a licensed mental health professional and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. For more information about counseling and therapeutic services, or for assistance in connecting with a therapist in your area, visit our website at www.smalltalkcounseling.com. Let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Emerald Couch. This is your host, Dr. Lakeitha Poole. Super, super excited that you guys are back for another episode. It's episode 11, so now we can't even count on our hands anymore, which is pretty exciting. So I thought it would be a good idea for this episode. I've gotten a lot of questions, which is great, about mental health and how to get into the profession and kind of just how to go about that process. So what I've done is created for this week's episode sort of like a flashback to an interview that I did with a master's student at LSU who was doing a paper on LPCs and what does it mean to be a licensed professional counselor. And so I thought it might be useful for those of you listening who are either interested in the field or for those of you who are still trying to figure out um, the type of mental health professional that's for you to kind of listen in, hear some of the questions that she asked, but also get to know a little bit more about me. So I know people are curious just a little bit more about who I am because I don't always get to talk about how I got to this point in my journey. So listen in, ask questions, send us questions, and I hope that you enjoy. So, um... Why did you decide to become a counselor? So for me, I think knowing growing up, probably not until I hit high school, did I even have any desire to be in sort of a helping field. I think Mm -hmm. I always told myself I was going to be the things that everybody says, a medical doctor, or I think at one point I wanted to be an artist, which I'm not sure why, because I didn't have like this unique artistic talent, but I loved art and, and that sort of thing, creativity. And so not until I got into high school. So my senior year of high school was when Hurricane Katrina happened. Mm-hmm. And so my family, like I mentioned, I'm from New Orleans. And so my family had to leave. And so I ended up at a high school that was probably, I don't know how much smaller, but a very small percentage of the high school I was in that had like a thousand people went from that to um I think the high school total might have had two or three hundred and then my grad the senior class I think the five of us who were from New Orleans that came made their senior class have 50 people so it was just a big difference um for me and and I remember as supportive as everybody was because people were awesome you know making sure we had what we needed um clothes and places to stay and food At no point did anybody ever think about sort of like the emotional part and ask, are y'all okay? You know, I'm a senior in high school. I'm applying to college. It was August. I needed to figure out my next step. My school's underwater. What do I do? And so I think I 
tons of friends who are school counselors, so I don't think they will take offense to this, but, like, school counselor couldn't do it for me because that just wasn't... And they didn't know me. These weren't my school counselors. These were at another high school. And so I remember once I did get to return back to New Orleans to finish my senior year at my high school, I had to take a psych uh, elective, and I loved it. And I just kind of fell in love with it, and I made a connection between that stuff and the emotions that come with life mm-hmm. and was just like there's jobs for this? I can do this? And so just decided, you know, to make psychology my, my major in undergrad at Florida State and just kind of went from there and, and then fell in love more so with the the wellness approach that we have as LPCs in, in sort of researching for graduate school and ended up actually being an LSU grad because of that model versus going like the clinical psych route. Yeah. And so that's really how I, I ended up there. So life itself and then realizing that there there were cures for that and, and realizing there were jobs for that. That's pretty interesting because that's kind of like, that's how I actually got into what I wanted to do too. Mm-hmm. Like last year, senior year, just like I need a class to take because mm-hmm. I couldn't leave school early. And I ended up just randomly taking psych as an elective. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Like, I like this. Yeah. See? Yeah, that's really cool. Um, Let's see. So why did you choose like LPC versus like other another mental health profession? Mm -hmm. Definitely the wellness piece. So when it was the end of undergrad, I was trying to figure out what was next. I had told myself once I started majoring in psychology that I would be, I was going to either do counseling or clinical psych. I'd already told myself that, but that's because I just didn't know that there were other options like clinical mental health, which at my time of being in school was called community counseling. Yeah. And so just kind of discovering that, reading up on it, and then of course starting to look at programs and seeing what their missions were and realizing like the LPC route was just a better fit for me, gave me an identity that fit well with how I felt like my clients should be treated. Mm-hmm. And it just it just worked. Okay, that's yeah. It's it's really crazy how it seems like so similar. Like mm-hmm. my response is how I would answer. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of difficulties did you face while you know working towards your LPC license? Um, well, I think one of the big challenges is you know we as LPCs are still considered the babies mm-hmm. of the profession. So, of course, like finding when post-graduation, you're looking for jobs. A lot of the jobs will list clinical positions under the title here in Louisiana in particular, because we're a social work state. Yeah. We'll say a social worker. And you look at the job description and like, no, that's all me. Um, that's everything that an LPC does. And so it's sort of the, the challenge of mentally for me breaking out of recognizing that I didn't need to feel like that could limit me so if it says social worker that's okay I'm still gonna apply as an LPC and then I'll let I'll get myself there and you look at my resume and you see that I have the same if not more um clinical training and and as an LPC and so I think that was a big one like the job hunt process after to get the hours that you need um so the, the, the process after getting out of school and then I guess just the questions and being able to defend your profession you know so when people are like what's an LPC because people still ask that yeah all the time so I don't necessarily know if it's a challenge but it's a constant battle to make sure that people make sure that we have a place at the table with social workers and with psychologists who yes older professions but don't do exactly what we do they're all that's why they're all different you know right I remember you um talking about that whenever you came to speak um Mm -hmm. to Dr. Choate's class Mm -hmm. how you got this job because you know it wasn't listed for an LPC yep but um you just kind of went in it's like well I can do all of these things Mm -hmm. so just to go off of that like what Mm -hmm. are some of the other jobs you've had as a counselor yeah so my first job right out of my master's program was working in uh, the office of multicultural affairs here at LSU managing our 
African American Cultural Center and being sort of the in-house counselor. Okay. Um, so the counselor on record, basically. And so what was cool about that was that's definitely like a higher ed, student affairs mm-hmm. type of job. But what was lacking, and because of my skill set, was that you had all these students hanging out in this space talking to the staff about all their problems and what was going on, but those folks weren't licensed to do that right. or, or even went to school for it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, again, because of the, how the job market was too, I needed to expand my thinking about what could fit. And so when I went to the person who was in charge of hiring for that area, I was kind of like, well, what if we also included, you know, mental health, multicultural mental health services as mm-hmm. a part of what we already do because we join all this diversity program anyway. Right. Um, and she loved it. She was she's not a clinician at all. Um, she's definitely a higher ed person and she thought it was great. And so I plan to only be there probably for like a year or two and I say for six. Wow. Um, and ended up, you know, creating their multicultural counseling services, changing up programming to always include mental health as a part of diverse student development. So it just it sort of unfolded on accident in some ways, but it goes back to like my other response of I advocated for myself and that has been a big one. And then of course, like started my private practice. So that too became a job in Mm -hmm. itself. So, which I liked because obviously most of my like professional work has been with college age students. So what I like about having a private practice is anybody can walk in somebody very old, very young in between couples, families, everything. And that's really nice, at least for me to be able to have. And then I think outside of that, just doing like volunteer work or getting extra hours for the LPC process. So I've worked at Heart, which is um, the HIV AIDS for Region 2 organization Mm -hmm. here in their gay men's clinic doing all their mental health assessments. I did that just to volunteer and I did that for like a year. And again, I wanted to be able to have experience in different settings Um, because that's definitely like a community agency full on. You know, nobody's getting paid a lot. It's just kind of you really do that type of work because you care about the cause. And so that for me was definitely a learning experience, but like has added to, I think, my wealth of knowledge for when, like I mentioned in y'all's class, Mm -hmm. this job came. I was able to talk about all that stuff I just mentioned. And most people would be like, what? Like, you know, how did you do that? So it's been a journey, but... I have some pretty cool jobs. I've liked them. It's yeah. It seems like you've done like so much. Just like not just stuck in like one little box. Like mm-hmm. you just taking that knowledge from the program and just expand it as far as you could. Mm-hmm. Um. So for this job, I know you um deal a lot with um talking to the athletes. Yeah. Do you? Is it just athletes, or can like anyone come in for for therapy? Yeah. It's just athletes okay. here. So, well, student athletes and then maybe student trainers because they're also students too. Okay. They're just not the athletes, right. but they're like athletic training students. Okay. We'll talk, we'll take them. And part of that is because, and the reason why I think this job even exists is that, you know, they need some folks with a little bit more of a flexible schedule because mm-hmm. the health center, it's eight to five right. and that's it. Um, whereas, you know, we have the flexibility to have like evening groups at 7 p.m. after okay. practice or we'll come and have a session with a student at 7 a.m. before they go to weight training. And so it's similar, though, run as far as like it's kind of like a clinic, but we just have more available hours, I think, and more special options that our other students who aren't athletes don't get. They have to go between the hours that they're open and it's kind of stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, our area is just for student athletes, which is different because I don't necessarily know I ever thought I'd be working just with that population mm-hmm. but the issues are the same I think okay. I said that in y'all's class yeah it, they're still college students who are trying to figure out life and screwing it up along the way <laughs> um so with your private practice do you have like a specialty area 
Um, I think when I started it, I did not have any intentions of having a specialty, but I think what has become my specialty and part of it is just probably based on my own identity. And when people start looking for a therapist is black women. Okay. Um, and so in some ways I think about that now, every time we get closer to going to another year being open of, do I just go ahead and like kind of embrace and claim that as mm-hmm. my thing? Because the majority of my clients that I've had since the practice has been open, which almost been two years, kind of crazy. Actually, it has been two years. In August, it made two years. It has been the majority. I've had maybe, in the two years of being open, individual male clients, maybe three. And then any other males were because they came for couples. Uh, so they were with their wives, who were black women. So I didn't set out to have a specialty, but somehow I think, and maybe just that's the nature of like Baton Rouge. Like I don't even mm-hmm. have an explanation for it. And then when people start Googling and they go to a website, they see a black lady and they're like, oh, she looks like me. You know, I want to go. But that wasn't the intention, but it's become my thing. And then they go and refer their sisters and their grandmothers and their daughters. And that's really just how I've built up my clientele and I guess remotely successful when I'm doing it on the side. So it's worked. That's great because, you know, like with such a stigma with mental health, especially in the black community, it's good to know that, you know, people feel like they have someone that they can go to that relates Mm -hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Do you see any, like, ev- well, I know there are advantages, you know, to working where you work, but do you see any disadvantages? Um, I think the things that people, if they aren't interested in, sort of the uh, amount of accessibility that our clients have to us for, I could see somebody not liking that. So, mm-hmm. like, how I mentioned the difference in the health center, when they're closed, they're closed. Right. They can't call those folks when they're off. We, I have a separate phone, literally, for student athletes to be able to reach out to us and not that we are doing like therapy over the phone but Mm -hmm. it might be at 10 o'clock after they're done with all their tutoring and all their classes where they text and say hey you know dr Poole, can i schedule an appointment with you well they can't do that over there you know and and that doesn't mean i'm going to answer it because i might be asleep but (laughs) i will see it and more than likely they will get a quick response and can be here in this office the next morning because right. I'll see it when I wake up and I'm like yeah come in or no that afternoon is better you know mm-hmm. they they would have to be on a wait list at the health center right. because that's just how it's it's functional um, in that way so those would be things that not necessarily for me because I don't mind it as much I knew that taking the job but I could totally see another LPC who's like no I just want to maybe they have a family so I don't so I think you know that could be totally different for somebody who's in a different phase in their life where maybe you know they need to be out of here because they have to pick up kids at three o'clock and or they won't make it into work until nine because they have to do carpool and so that sort of thing I could totally see as a person being like Ooh, I don't know about that type of job. And I think we've had plenty of people who said, who like, nah, not for me. For me, it works for right now. Okay. So I like it. Yeah. Um, so I know you mentioned in the class, like, you know, you do get some of your referrals because of, you know, the insurance. Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned that, you know, you get a lot of referrals through other people seeing you. Mm-hmm. Um, where is the majority, though, of your clients? Um, like, where do they come from? Yeah. Um, I, I think insurance. Okay. Um, and I think then the, the demographic piece kicks in because once you go to, if you go to Blue Cross's website and you type in the area code you want to see somebody in, well then on Blue Cross's website itself, you can then say, well, I want to see a female therapist mm-hmm. or I want to see a black therapist or I want to see, you know, whatever. So I think like insurance helps a lot because it's sort of built in clients. Right. You know, if they get a referral from their primary care physician that they need to see somebody, all they got to do is just like they found that doctor go log in, say who they want to see or what type of clinician, 
and I'm on that list. And so it is a good way, and I think I said this in y'all's class, starting out, I think, to be on a couple insurance panels Mm -hmm. because so then once... I see that person who has Blue Cross Blue Shield. I'm just going to use that as an example. Well, maybe their sister doesn't have insurance or has one that I don't take because of just how great that person has Mm -hmm. said it was. That person might be like, well, I'm willing to pay out of pocket because I need somebody that looks like me, who I trust. My family trusts them already. And so then that way, that's money that comes right into my hand when they leave that session versus insurance. People get sort of... I think um, iffy about it because they they want the money now and they want it to be this like you know cash over right. hand interaction. And if you're getting into it for that, you don't. No one goes into counseling because you're trying to make like mm-hmm. crazy amounts of money. Not in the beginning, right? And so I think the insurance part for some people either scares them or deters them because they feel like okay, I got to make this my you know. And for some people, it is. If you mm-hmm. don't, I have another job, so as not as you know, I have a full time right, job. Exactly. So for me, it's kind of like this is extra money. Whereas for other people, it it is their only thing, and so I get it. But the insurance part for me has been probably the the most beneficial of where I've gotten many clients, and then it's on me to make them have a great therapeutic experience, so that both more insurance people come, their mm-hmm. friends, their coworkers, because their coworkers more than likely have the same insurance. Right. Um, I've gotten a lot of those, and then. Their family members who may or may not have the same insurance, but are looking for somebody they can trust, and they're the only person that they even know that's done therapy, mm-hmm. and they're like, "I'm willing to pay. What's her rate?" That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So while we're still talking about you know um, insurance companies, <clears throat> mm-hmm. I know you mentioned whenever you came to talk to us how um, you had some issues yeah. trying to get on the um, oh, insurance yeah. boards. Mm-hmm. Um, did you face like any other challenges besides that with insurance companies? No, that's the biggest challenge is the wait time for mm-hmm. getting on it. The application process process is lengthy um, but once you're on you're on so it's pretty great once you can get on I think the challenge that then comes which is not necessarily with the insurance company is for you in private practice if that's what you're thinking about is how will you manage the processing of the insurance right so like I have a full-time job and I have my practice. Well, I also have to make time to, like, make sure all my claims Mm -hmm. are in so I can actually get the money for this work that I've done. And so as somebody who think of myself as technologically savvy, that's a whole other level. And so making sure that, um, and I think I said this in y'all's class, like, figuring out the investments on the front end that you might need. So I have a my, like, case and note management system allows me, once I get on those insurance panels, to input all of the sort of payment claim info so that when I'm done with the session, I type my note, I save it up, and then I send it right to them. And so it's done. Versus I have colleagues who are like doing paperwork, writing claims, mailing them in, faxing them in. You don't know when that's going to come back. Um, You don't know if it's going to make it there. You know, now with technology, you don't have to like, you can scan Mm -hmm. stuff. You don't have to fax it. But some companies, they want it through a fax machine. You know, they want it in the mail. So you got to buy stamps. Like, you know, so (laughs) all sorts of things that, uh, again, were challenges, particularly in the beginning, starting out. And that's Mm -hmm. what I think I was trying to share with y'all that night. There's a bunch of stuff on the front end that will make people get discouraged because it's just, it's just a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But there are easier ways. You just have to be willing to figure them out so that the insurance, taking insurance is worth it. But you'll get people who are like, no, I'm never doing insurance because it's so much paperwork and so much. Well, it can be, but it doesn't have to be if you're willing to invest back mm-hmm. into yourself to get what you need, not to have it be, you know, some huge task. So that would be the biggest, I think, challenge with insurance is just knowing how to get on the panels. And then once you do it, like knowing the claims process so that you feel like all these people you're seeing, 
that you get your money back. You know, you get your money mm-hmm. for seeing them. Because that day when they come, they might pay a copay, but that might be 10, 20 bucks. That's not going to do much for you. And yeah, you'll have that in your hand that day, but it might be a week or two before you get the other half of what your rate is from them. And you got to be okay with that if you're going to take insurance and be patient. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Where can we go now? Um, you talked about how you felt about, you know, LPC job in the job market. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does counseling affect your life, like personally and professionally? Um, personally, you're like worn out when you get home. Mm-hmm. So like you listen to a lot. Most of what you hear is sad. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like people. So every now and then I get a I had two clients today that are actually in good mood. So that made me feel kind of good. Um, and then you're my last person of the day that's not my client. So it's nice because I can decompress yeah. a little bit. But, you know, if it affects you because at the end of the day, you know, these are people's lives. And so you're you're wanting to do your best to take good care of them and, and, and encourage them to make changes that they want to make. But you have to also figure out how to not take that home, right. you know. And so when I, when I leave at 5 o'clock each day, I try to, like, you know, when I'm closing that door and walking back down the hall to get out of here, I try to sort of wrap up while I'm walking to the, my car. Okay, what's who's okay, who's doing this, who's doing that, when will I see them? And then by the time I hit the car, I'm music on, I'm whatever. I'm trying not to think about it. It does make it a struggle in your home life sometimes to, like, be... You use a lot of empathy in during the day. And mm-hmm. so it's really hard with, you know, significant others or family to be all in to whatever they got going on. Right. But you have to be sensitive to that because you need them. Those are your family. Mm-hmm. So I also then have to make sure then what do I need before I engage them in that way? And sometimes that's just an hour at home by myself before I start like making calls to check on mom or or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that sort of thing, I think, is is one of the areas for personally it plays in. Professionally, I think goes back to some of the stuff we already talked about. It's just it's a constant. We're in a constant sort of battle to prove ourselves a little bit. I know I'm representing like a bunch of people mm-hmm. because people are still very confused about what LPCs are, and so that adds to my level of confidence, but also like hesitation to make sure I'm always doing mm-hmm. the right thing, representing us well, but also putting us out there because I want people to realize that we should have these jobs. You know, we should be the folks that are here doing this type of work because we have the direct clinical training to do it and to not just think of one part of that person, but holistically thinking about their overall well-being and that is what sets us apart. So, and maybe that's a battle that, like, I just decided to take upon myself because, like, Dr. Cho or Dr. Curry or Dr. Ginner did not tell us to do that. <laughs> but they told us to defend the profession in yeah. that sense. And so I think that's the parts for me professionally that I see is just so being able to, like, have the balance. So, like, home life, like we talked about, but also at work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. So for you, what is the most fulfilling part of being a counselor? I think getting to watch the process. So when, you know, a student or a client comes to you who is in a place, obviously, where they've reached the limit because mm-hmm. they've decided to seek out some support means that, you know, they've, they've plummeted in some ways, like emotionally, right. and they need some help. And so getting them at that point in their lives and then over time, sometimes what seems like a relatively short time, maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of months, to I have clients that I've seen now over a year, you know, and to see 
who they are now versus who I remember them to be that first day where they were teary-eyed and, you know, really mm-hmm. thought their life was in shambles. And then to see them being empowered and making decisions for themselves and changing uh, the way they make choices, it's, it, it's the fulfilling part. Because, again, these aren't jobs that we get paid a ton of money to do. Um, you have to love the fact that you are literally doing your small part to make the world a better place by encouraging people to like take control of their lives, live their best lives. So I try to reflect on that when I have long weeks, long days, to really know that I'm doing my best to make as much of a difference as I can. Okay. Um, I know it seems like you do a lot, you know, just like with your different jobs. Is mm-hmm. there ever a time where you just feel unprepared going into a uh, counseling session? Yeah, sometimes, particularly with, well, I probably can give you two examples. So I've been now in athletics for a little over a year. And while I was an athlete in like middle school, I was not a collegiate athlete, especially at, I went to a really big school, very Mm -hmm. big sports school, Florida State's huge, but I didn't play sports there. And so being prepared for the pressure or the uh, expectations that some of my student athlete clients come in with around sport was a big learning curve for Mm -hmm. me. And so, you know, there weren't elective courses around like sport counseling. The good part is like now there's like ACA has a network for it. And like there people are because now more of us are getting these type of jobs, being able to listen very closely to see is the problem really about their ability with their sport or is it more so a mental health or emotional thing Mm -hmm. that we got that. That's what we do as LPCs. So that's one. And then the same thing with couples counseling. And I think we talked about this when I took the family class in our program at LSU is like at the end of the day, I've worked with a lot of couples, all of which have been married. And so I know my theories, I know my techniques and all that stuff from the books that we've learned Mm -hmm. and I've, you know, done trainings. But at the end of the day, there are still moments where as a as a person take the LPC hat off and the clinician hat off. I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I have the answer for that, you know, and being able to make sure that then if I don't have the answers for it, then by the time I see them again, I do, you know, or Mm -hmm. at least have figured out something or I'll consult, I'll call up another LPC and who does couples counseling and say, what would you do with this? So there, there are definitely times, but I never feel like whatever they bring in, even if I'm not fully aware or conscious of it at the moment that I can't figure it out right and I think that that's the confidence and I think the training which was excellent training Mm -hmm. that we got at LSU in that program that you will you will have the resources to be able to then discover what you need and I definitely agree with that so whether I go into it having it or not sometimes yes sometimes no most times yes but if I don't I I will get it you know I will figure it out Mm -hmm. Uh, okay so um I know there's times, you know, like, even as an LPC, like, everyone has their bad days. Mm-hmm. So, what do, what do you do? Like, how do you, are you able to block out that whenever it's time for you to have a counseling session? Yeah. Um, I think for me is to always go into a counseling session knowing that it's not about me. Mm-hmm. So, even if I wake up grumpy all this week, in particular, I've been sick. Science infection, because we live in Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like 50 degrees one day and then the next day is 90 and then it's back to 50 and then it's 20 and then it's 90. And so, you know, this week was a rough one for me in the beginning because I felt like I was dying, like, you know, in some ways. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, so that that didn't put me in the best mood because I'm, you know, it's early mornings. I'm trying to work with students. I'm trying to go visit with teams and do all these other things and like re- wearing myself down. 
and I'm kind of grumpy about it, you know? And so I have to be able to realize, though, that's not that person's fault that's sitting on that sofa. I could have taken off from work and canceled all my sessions for the day if Mm -hmm. that's really what I needed. So when I don't do that, I have to make sure, you know, I remind myself, you're doing this for their sake. And if you decided to still stay at work today... You have to be all in for them. They can't suffer because of what you have going on. And so just remind yourself of that, whether it's for me, it was just a cold this week. But, you know, if it is something personal going on in my life, then I got to figure out how do I like create boundaries, emotional boundaries for myself to not let that bleed into something that a student tells me that I might connect with. I might have had an experience Mm -hmm. with. I might really identify with, but it's not my job to even put that on them. I'm trying to help them figure that out. And then if something comes up for me, I need to think about that on my own time or go see my therapist and talk about it. So I try to make sure that those boundaries are always there and clear because it's about them. Yeah, I've been um, worrying more and more, you know, just going through the intro classes because, mm-hmm. um, you know, they'll try to make it, like, you know, very clear, like, you know, it's better to whatever you're dealing with, it's better to, you know, try to work with it now instead mm-hmm. of when you're with a client and you may connect with something and don't even realize you're connecting with it until you're, like, midway through there. a session. Yep. So that's, I've been dealing, I've been um, trying to deal with that a lot more too. Yeah. Lately. Okay. So in terms of like client goals, how do you separate what you feel the client needs while um, you're still respecting what the client thinks that mm-hmm. they need? Always making sure that, you know, their autonomy is kept and respected. Okay. So I definitely think in general counseling, which is again, another distinction for us as LPCs, is a collaborative process. Mm -hmm. So they are also authors of their counseling experience. That's why we call them clients, not patients. I'm not fixing them. I'm helping them figure out how to fix themselves. And so there are plenty of time, particularly with college students, where I'm listening to what they say they want to do, and I'm like, no, and in my brain, I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, that's going to be so bad, or like, break up with them, they're like, don't treat you right, you Mm -hmm. know, and yet, in their mind, they feel like they need to do something different, Um, so I think it's my job to be able to say, okay, well, here are our goals, and then if there are ways that I can help them further examine them by sort of challenging them a little bit, and we learn about that, like cognitive reframing and challenging, and y'all will learn about all that if you haven't already, and being able to make sure that, like, okay, these are the things you've said. Now, how do these fit with really what you've ultimately told me you mm-hmm. came in for? And so just giving them something to think with. And so I think the biggest part of it is being patient and knowing that, like, yeah, the initial goals that they say and set out to do really might not fit well with what I think they need. But maybe a month from now, it'll be different because they will go ahead and make that decision that I maybe don't agree with. I'll be here to pick up the pieces with them and put it back together and then come up with a new one. So it's being a little bit, you know, patient, Mm -hmm. but also allowing them the autonomy to say, like, at the end of the day, I'm here as your partner to get you through this and work with you through this. But ultimately, it's always their decision. And you have those moments where, yeah, in your head, you're like... (laughs) Good luck, you know, Mm because you know it's just probably not the best thing based on what they've told you. Right. But also recognize sometimes, too, and I remind myself, maybe they haven't told me all the details. Mm -hmm. And so this decision might fit really well with what they know to be the full truth versus what I might know to be the part that they shared. And for me to just go home knowing that I still did my part based on the knowledge I had. Right. And I leave it at that. So has there ever been a time when someone's kind of been like pretty adamant about their goals and you're kind of like, what do you do in a, in a case like that? Yeah. Um, yes, there have been lots. (laughs) Uh, Um, and when that happens, you know, I allow them the free space to still say it is your choice. 
And as your clinician, you know, I support your choice. I may not, and I'll tell, I'll be honest, I'll be transparent and say, uh, not necessarily what I was thinking compared to like kind of what you said and Mm -hmm. what we agreed was maybe the better choice to make. But I respect you and I have, there is still no judgment on my part. So my regard, my positive regard for you stays unchanged. And so that in itself, oftentimes, maybe after a week of them still thinking they're going to go do their own thing Mm -hmm. and they realize like, well, dang, she, you know, not even going to judge me. And this is probably a really bad choice. Usually they come back and they've changed their mind. Um, So for, again, it, it goes back to that patience and like your temperament being one that they realize man, even though this probably is a really bad choice, she still says she's going to support me. Yeah. That happens a lot, particularly with a lot of my cases that have to do with, like, substance use and abuse. You know, particularly when they're getting close to where I'm thinking they might need some deeper treatment, Mm -hmm. more intensive than what we can do here. They have to trust me enough to know I'm never going to judge them before they will be willing to really do something like that. There's a lot at stake. They're trust in the fact that what I'm telling them as the goal that they said that they wanted because they want maybe they want to stop smoking marijuana or they want to stop doing something break up with somebody whatever if I can't give them that unconditional positive regard and that level of trust and rapport that we've worked on throughout it'll backfire on me because right. it'll they'll be like you don't really care about me you want me to do what you want to do and they already have enough people mm-hmm. in their lives who want them to do what they want so I, I don't ever want to get lumped in with those folks so being patient but also being transparent so if I have a good enough relationship with them I'll be transparent and say that just doesn't fit well with what we sort of said we were working on and I'm really concerned that that won't turn out well for you what do you think you know and still Mm -hmm. give it back to them I still put it back on them but I have to also have you know it's our duty to protect them too so I'm like "Mm -hmm, that's not a good choice um, and I find a way to say that in a therapeutic way right. to challenge them. And, and then, again, it's still left in their hands after that. So they still could hear me out and also see my side of it and still go out and do whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. And I still have to be here when they get back after they've done it with open arms or open ear to be able to be like, all right, well, how do we fix it? Where do we where do we start? Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's. Uh, what's one thing that you wish some, that you wish someone would have told you um, when you were new in the field about uh, working as an LPC? Probably just more details like we talked about about the job hunt. So just knowing that I would have to defend the profession a lot and, yeah. and put myself out there for jobs that maybe I wouldn't normally go for because they say social worker or psychologist. So that part. Um, which I feel like they gave us a heads up on, but I think knowing that it varies a lot by state. So yeah. if we were all in California or New York, LPCs are like the thing next to psychologists versus social workers or not. Mm-hmm. Social workers in those places are like the people who go in people's homes and take their kids. Like that's what they describe them as. Yeah. Um, whereas in where here, social workers are seen as clinical, you know, folks mm-hmm. like people doing therapy. So I think just some more info about what that would be like in ways I could sell myself instead of having to learn by trial and error a little bit. And I mean, I guess just and they these are things they probably did tell us. And I just probably it may the question probably should be more what did I listen to and what didn't I listen to. <laughs> Is like the balance of self-care and yeah. like making sure that like we were talking about a little while ago too when I leave out of here what do I need to sort of be able to reset and be ready to then be Lakitha like in my family mm-hmm. and Lakitha to my friends and you know and what does that look like again you know I think probably within my first two or three years of being a clinician 
knowing that I hadn't really, because I had been in school all that time, really developed like hobbies and stuff again. What did I like to do to relax? Yeah. When so I would be like, oh, I'm gonna have some downtime today, self care. And then I'm like sitting there, like, what am I supposed to do? Exactly. And, and so it was just kind of like, mm. and so maybe more details on like how to make sure in the maybe the grad school process you're developing sort of your toolkit of how you're going to take care of yourself as a clinician. And so, of course, I would get, for me, I feel like the most expensive hobby, I love to travel. So then for me, it's figuring out how do I plan trips. And someone's exciting because then I'll, my friend and I, in October, we planned a trip for January. And that seems so far away, but it gives me, one, something to look forward yeah. to. And also, like, that weekend itself, when it does come, is going to be a weekend away from here for mm-hmm. me. So, and it also happens to be my birthday month. So I'm excited. Like, there are reasons to do that. So just probably more advice on like the the work-life balance and and how to really get it, keep it, make it work Mm -hmm. and flourish. Those would be the biggest things I think I would wish more people told me about. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I feel like now like I literally go from work straight to class and then straight from class go home, try to get work done. As soon as I know it's like midnight, Mm -hmm. 1am, need to go to sleep. And so, you know, just feel like I never have time to kind of just chill out for a moment like you know try to do self-care and then you know being in school for three straight years and going on to do the plpc Mm -hmm. like you're making me think not so i need to start figuring out like to find time for myself yes because i feel like now i'm just constantly going right plan it out this so the same way you put in your phone or in your planner dinner with whoever or Mm -hmm. class at this time or practicum at this time or interview with Dr. Poole like you put it in your phone or something you need to do that with like your downtime so if that's a nap or if that's like driving home for the weekend like put going Mm -hmm. home in your phone because when you see that earlier in the week one it gives you something to like I just mentioned with the trip to look forward to but it also gives you some exciting uh, ways to think about what self-care really looks like and get very specific you know Mm -hmm. so at some points we I think maybe in our second year of the program we decided okay because none of us were LSU undergraduate alums Uh and so we all were kind of like what do we do here you know and so by our second year we were like maybe we should go to football games because we all went to these like different schools had different ways of doing Mm -hmm. football and we were all just like well my school is the best way and my school is the best way and so we're like but we're all going to have degrees from here so we're going to be alums we need Mm -hmm. to embrace this and so for us for the fall semester which was our practicum semester we needed that yeah and so saturday nights became our time where we would go all eat together somewhere first and then we go to the game and and we would stay at the game till it was over because we were adults like we were older than the undergrad crew who's like leaving to go wherever they're going midway through the game and so it made again for fun times and it also helped us create bonds and friendships within our cohort that we just you know probably wouldn't have formed had we not all decided we needed to take better care of ourselves and now we all started the program eight years ago eight years later Mm -hmm. we're all still friends we've gone to each other's weddings now and and people's baby showers and um you know visit those make for you want to have your own life experiences while you're trying to in the counseling room help your clients make Mm -hmm. theirs it would suck for you to put all that into them and then you go home every day and not feel fulfilled or not feel like you are well rested or have what you need so that for sure is i think something yes to think about now versus waiting until you get to graduation Mm -hmm. and then like okay how am i going to start implementing self-care where your jobs might change self-care is going to look different Mm -hmm. for every job based on your schedule so right now while your schedule 
pretty consistent, but yet it's going to change every semester because your classes are going to require different things of you. Practicum and internship mm-hmm. going to require different things of you. This is a good time to just get in the habit of also putting yourself first like you do with your clients when you're with them. Yes, because mm-hmm. I know last weekend was the first weekend in over a month. I was actually at my apartment. And so last week was the first week and I didn't have anything to do. And I was just like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I just kind of just sat in my apartment the whole week and like, I, like, I don't I know what nothing. to do. Yeah, I got nothing. Yeah. So uh, let's awesome. see. So based on your experiences, like, are there um, any other words of wisdom that you would give, you know, a person like me as a counseling student mm-hmm. preparing to become an LPC? For me... My advice is always to anybody, find, make sure that your identity is visible within, you know, your clinical style. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, I'm always going to be Lakeitha from New Orleans. I'm going to still have my accent mostly. I try to slow it down because mm-hmm. we talk fast right. there. But like, I'm still me. So, mm-hmm. you know, even from the way that you have to be professional, but like, my style, you know, that sort of thing is important to me because when I feel my most comfortable and most like myself, I do my best work clinically. And so making sure that as you learn all your theories, learn all your techniques, but then learn how to make them your own so that your clients, because they know when mm-hmm. you're genuine or not. And I think that it has definitely contributed to my success, particularly when we, we're talking about like certain populations. Right. For me, particularly when I'm working with black women, it's like we can talk in a language that only we understand. Mm-hmm. And being able to talk about even things that don't necessarily feel clinical. So like talking about where they like to shop and that happens to be similar maybe. And so being able to realize that's okay to bring in the counseling room. I think people want to be very rigid mm-hmm. about how counseling looks to the point where you're not relating to your client in the in right. the way you're making you seem on this pedestal and that they're your student. Mm-hmm. And like I mentioned, like it's a collaborative thing. It's not for me to be this like grand wizard of therapy and you to be this humble being that I'm going to, you know, work my magic on. Mm-hmm. And so part of what has made this work enjoyable, because all your questions have asked, we've asked, how do you manage everything and how do you keep yourself well? You have to feel like you can be yourself because if that part goes away, it, it's almost not even worth it anymore. So for sure, while you're learning, all, all these things are very important. Dr. Gintner's class in the DSM, Dr. Choate's class with the intro to counseling, like all that stuff is really great. Mm-hmm. And you need to be able to have that knowledge base, but then you need to be able to just always say, this is me coming yeah. in too, because that's what somebody who's really coming for therapy is looking for, another person that they can relate to, but just who won't judge. Right. And who also is very comfortable being who they are, because I think that inspires that client mm-hmm. to be who they are or trying to become or who they are maybe haven't been comfortable enough in their own skin to even reveal that to family and friends mm-hmm. you know so yeah definitely just be yourself learn as much as you can make connections network with people reach out to people who are in your campus environment but mm-hmm. also in the community who you feel like you can whether they're mentors or friends or whatever be able to put yourself out there so that you get everything that you need because the three years goes by so fast and for us again it was two so it's going to go by so quickly it's kind of scary and so then you get to the end and you're like oh wait I have to now I have to do this mm-hmm. like this is the this is me so don't hide yourself in the process like become more of yourself I think yeah. that's what we as a cohort feel like we became our best selves probably in that experience because we were learning so much about how to help other people but we were also applying a lot of that to our own issues and problems so that we could be the best clinicians for our clients and I think we benefited because and I think now 
years later they benefit because of it right i'm mm-hmm. I'm glad you like mentioned the part about identity because mm-hmm. you know i came to lsu for undergrad mm-hmm. i had to go to private school in high school so i always mm-hmm. felt like i kind of had to assimilate in a sense mm-hmm. just so that i didn't completely stand out mm-hmm. you know for bad things right right so right. you know but now as i get older you know being in the program like and also like like my last year of undergrad, it kind of helped me now more starting to, you know, just accept me mm-hmm. for who I who am. And just like, you know, that can actually just be very beneficial for me as a counselor. Right. Because no one wants to just have like this really monotone, generic person mm-hmm. as a counselor that's mm-hmm. like, okay, you're just here and you're just saying what you think I want to hear. Right. Exactly. And people, people are smart. So they, they know if you're not really being yourself and you're trying to be, you know, sit there with your clipboard and yeah. be all like, whatever. They will totally not return, particularly in areas like a private practice Mm -hmm. or in something like what I do on a day-to-day basis. These student-athletes already have so much on their plate that the last thing they need is another meeting with somebody who they feel like is fake or phony or not necessarily really listening to them. Mm -hmm. And so why then would I waste their time and mine if we're not going to really get out of it what this person needs to better themselves? So I'm happy to hear that you feel feel comfortable doing that because you should. And I also recognize there are people who probably are much more, you know, smart and inept in things relating to counseling and all sort of other things Mm -hmm. who will still not have my same demeanor or attitude or swag or language because at the end of the day, while I can go and stand in front of 200 people and give a talk on CBT and be the most professional person they've seen ever, I also, when I'm with my friends kicking it, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be me um, and laugh and give my jokes and, you know, maybe not use proper grammar because I don't want to that mm-hmm. day um, and so that's okay that doesn't make you the fake or the whatever that makes you somebody who you want to make sure that when you're delivering a message around something you care about that is clear and everybody can get it it's not my job to explain what I'm talking with my friends in my language right. what I'm talking about but it is my job as the director of sports psychology and counseling for mm-hmm. LSU if I have to do a presentation that I talk in a way so everybody gets it and there doesn't have to be any confusion because I want them to be clear on this knowledge that I'm trying to give right. to them. So, yeah, don't let anybody tell you who to be, who not to be, and what you got to be on. You could be somebody different every day. You know, that's you being able to realize that, like, you're stepping into your role as both mm-hmm. a professional, but you're still a person. And as that person, you still get to be whoever you want to be, just like you're telling your clients to be. As a professional, you still get to be whoever you want to be. But if who you want to be in that role looks a little bit different than the other... That's okay. That's that's your choice. You know, like, I know, like, in a professional setting, you know, like you said, things, mm-hmm. you know, have, have to be said. But yeah. I'm not going to just let that be, you know, like, your way just, all the yeah, time. It's, it's just tiring. a lie. It's tiring. <laughs> but in either case, you're being whoever you want to be in that moment, then it doesn't really matter. Again, going back to my advice, be yourself. Do what you got to do. You know, enjoy the process because you will grow a lot personally. Becoming a counselor, you just be, you, your awareness increases. You have more empathy for other people. Mm-hmm. It makes you makes us a little, you know, we, we're softies now. We will cry, you know, <laughs> like because we see a lot and we hear a lot. And yeah. so I do find myself as I the older I get being a little bit more sensitive just to people's emotions and like even tragedies, things that happen in the world, mm-hmm. um, because that's kind of what we do. We, we triage a little bit with that. So you got to have time to be yourself, take good care of yourself like we talked about, do what you got to do to make this 
be a career for you, not just like this thing you went to school for and you don't use the degree anymore. Right, exactly. You can really impact lives. And like the question you asked me, which I think was a great one, of, you know, what do I love most about it is the fact that I know I might not be curing cancer or doing, you know, working on some huge engineering project or something like that, but I know that in my single interactions with people that maybe happen weekly or monthly or whenever, I'm transforming the world because then those folks go home and interact with their families in a different way that's exactly. more positive, that's changing what sort of impact we have. We have, And so being able to realize that within those groups, I'm, I'm changing the world. You know, I'm changing the energy that's out there and I'm doing it my way as me and that won't ever change. So you don't change either. Right. So... <laughs> So taking into account, like, all of your experiences, training, and education, mm-hmm. uh, what have you found to be the most beneficial and valuable resource in your ability to help a client? Um, probably all those things. So, like, the combination of <laughs> yeah. all of them. But probably my willingness to accept that I haven't, like we were just talking about, I haven't seen everything yet. Mm-hmm. So if there is something brand new, I got to be willing just because I'm done with school I got a PhD I still have to go pick up a book and read or go find articles or call up professors and email them and be like well, what do I do with this because mm-hmm. I don't know so it's it's almost like humbling yourself still in the process to make sure that you understand that as much as you gain there is always going to be more to know um, and that's probably one of the cool things I like about being a counselor is it's constantly evolving of yes. what is useful in helping people new theories come out all the time new techniques New ways of even approaching therapy comes up all the time. And for me, that keeps it exciting because it's always going to be more to know. There's always going to be another conference to go to or a seminar mm-hmm. to sit in to learn about something that I just, I never knew. So for me, it's the desire to keep going yeah. that I really, really like. Okay. So um, I think that's about it for the interview. Yeah. Um, thank you for doing it. Absolutely. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and got to know a little bit more about what it means to be a licensed professional counselor, as well as a little bit more about me. Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in every week. Make sure that if you haven't already, that you like and subscribe and follow. Um, Also, if you listen to us on iTunes, make sure you rate us. And if you listen to us on SoundCloud, feel free to like and share as well. So looking forward to another week next week back here on the Emerald Couch.